KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Katha Pollitt will talk about what Americans owe to Afghan women and girls. Her latest column for The Nation reports on what leaders of Afghan women's organizations are saying. The Afghan Women's Fund, Madre, and Women for Afghan Women. Also, our TV and film critic Ella Taylor will talk about the new comedy series starring the wonderful Sandra Oh as the first Asian American woman chair of an English department at a liberal arts college that's in financial trouble. It's called Chair. It's on Netflix. And it challenges the conservative idea that the universities are all under the control of left-wing Marxist feminists. First up, today's political update. And for that, we turn to Alan Minsky. He's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, the grassroots group that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Hi, Alan. Hey, John. Great to be here. Well, the headlines, of course, are all about getting Americans out of Afghanistan. Joe Biden, as of the middle of the night, had succeeded in getting something like 82,000 people out of Afghanistan, which is pretty amazing. There's only about 1,500 Americans left. He thinks he can get 100,000 people out by the August 31st deadline, which is next week. Nevertheless, pundits have been saying Biden and his domestic social proposals have been badly damaged by the end of the Afghan war. I think there's a lot of evidence that in American elections, what voters care about is their own families, that Americans do not vote on foreign policy issues, except when Americans are getting killed, like Vietnam or on 9-11, or when Americans are being held hostage abroad, Iran in 1980. Biden is clearly counting on his economic program to provide the centerpiece for Democratic campaigns for the House and Senate in 2022. The big news uh, this week is that Tuesday, the House passed a $3.5 trillion budget that is the key to Biden's unprecedented human infrastructure bill, which can pass the Senate with no Republican support. This is the one we're going to call the reconciliation bill. It can pass as long as every Senate Democrat votes for it. But first, it has to pass the House. And the House passing this budget for it is a huge and necessary first step. Now comes the hard part, what goes into the bill. That's what we want to talk to you about. From your point of view, from the viewpoint of uh, Progressive Democrats of America and the Progressive Caucus, what are the highlights of this bill? Maybe let's start with the expansion of Medicare. Yeah, there are three um, expansions uh, of Medicare, if it's broadly defined in terms of expansions. Uh, first of all, uh, it, it expands classical Medicare, so not Medicare Advantage, to cover um, vision, dental, and hearing. This is significant expansion of the services provided by Medicare for uh, obviously anybody who would have Medicare or ever had to have visited an eye doctor, an ear doctor, or a dentist. Um, and so this is a great thing. That's one. Two, um, again, broadly defined expansion of Medicare, expanding it so that it will negotiate um, drug prices and basically set a level for drug prices for hopefully the entire American market. Uh, the largest single, it would be by far the largest single negotiator of uh, drug pharmaceutical drugs. 
and will lower the costs, which as you most listeners probably know are incredibly exorbitant for many people in many, many instances. Uh, and this is a, something where the devil will be in the details, but just establishing that, which this bill can do um, at any level will be great. The third thing is uh, lowering the eligibility age of Medicare down to 60. Um, this um, one component, um, if one of the three were to drop, this is the most likely to drop. But right now, if we're pushing through at 3.5 billion and it's on the list of things, it's trillion, trillion, trillion 3.5 trillion. Right. If we're going for 3.5 trillion and it's on the list of things that are covered in that cost, then it has a very good chance of going forward. And of course, this is this is great, especially for someone like me, John, because uh, 60 isn't that far away from me. And 65 is a little bit further away. From me. <laughs> <laughs> I know that, uh, you know, Medicare is tremendously popular in the United States. How popular are these proposals? Um, you know, uh, the as you can imagine, the top two are very popular. The The next one is very popular with people between 60 and 65. Um, I don't know how much polling exists on that particular measure because it just sort of got established at 60. You know, and it gets confusing in the polls because, you know, if we were going to go to Medicare for all the way, even Bernie Sanders was proposing it as first the eligibility age would lower to 55, then 45, and then, you know, down lower all the way till everybody's included, uh, you know, a year at a time. So uh, a little bit confusing in the poll numbers there. Uh, the pharmaceutical drug negotiations is massively, massively popular. Now, as I said, the devil's in the details, and that's because um, there are going to be restrictions on which drugs will be able to be negotiated. I imagine this has, among other things, to do with how close they are to uh, you know, when the patent was was given for maybe a new drug. Um, and so is it going to include 10 new drugs a year, 25 new drugs a year, 250 new drugs a year? Of course, we're for all the drugs or as large a number as we can get. And uh, we'll see what comes out in the details as it's written. Uh, and I think there'll be a lot of push and pull, especially if that information becomes public before it's uh, locked in place in either the House or the Senate. But as it will be, you know, competing bills, one from the House, one from the Senate, if there's a difference there, then, of course, we can expect to see a good amount of public, um, you know, uh, input in terms of uh, what that number of drugs gets set at. Now, we're, we're not starting from zero in thinking about this. I believe the VA has been negotiating the price of drugs for a long time. That is correct. Uh, well, Medicare, as you can imagine, is a much, um, even much, much larger pool of people and therefore will, um, you know, really be able to set the market rate for, and that's not the case with the VA. It doesn't. So, so <laughs> expansion of Medicare, first big part of what we're calling the reconciliation bill. What are the other highlights? Um, well, one of the things that's spoken about most in this is the climate component of it. And while it's true that this bill and the bipartisan, much smaller bipartisan infrastructure bill include things like direct fiscal spending, so government projects, government spending. Um, the climate aspect of the bills, it wasn't very good or very strong, to say the least, in the bipartisan bill, which had, of course, Republican votes. And that's because the Republican Party is a, you know, owned uh, subsidiary of, of the fossil fuel industry, effectively. Uh, in terms of its public policy around energy policy. Um, the Democratic Party, much less so. So the climate component of these bills is very large. 
But since it's not in the brick and mortar infrastructure project, there's not a lot of, you know, building, uh, you know, solar farms and, and windmills, that kind of thing that maybe would have been done with the Roosevelt administration. Uh, so, you know, that kind of thing isn't available in the, the reconciliation bill. So it's mainly driven by tax incentives. And that is from a bill. There are two competing bills out there, one from a California um, quite moderate Democratic uh, Congressman Mike Thompson. That's the version in the House called the Green Act. And then um, Ron Wyden, who's actually the head of the Finance Committee, which is the relevant committee in the Senate when it comes to taxes, has introduced a bill for the Senate. Now, Wyden's bill is more progressive. Um, It uh, has less uh, subsidies uh, or things that can be effective subsidies for the fossil fuel industry and um, more incentives for the really kind of completely off fossil fuel renewable energy projects that we would, uh, we really support at PDA. And we really think, you know, the, the, the IPCC report, for instance, uh, you know, basically suggests stop calling, you know, natural gas uh, energy systems, fueled energy systems, clean energy, the yeah. amount of methane that gets into the atmosphere through the fracking process the natural gas extraction process is almost as bad on, as, as if it were coal at the end of the day. So um, what we want to see are uh, you know, money for solar, money for renewable energies, money for research to be done so that um, you can lift up the kind of high level capacity of those energies uh, to match what can be done uh, and has been done uh, with um, you know, carbon-based uh, energy sources. Uh, and, to, you know, what, what do I mean by that? Um, you know, there are a few places where you can't get enough bursts of power yet off of wind or solar to do things like bend steel in a steel factory. So, you know, there's research and development, battery storage development, expanding battery storage. All of this stuff is incentivized and there's some money for it uh, in the infrastructure bill. Very, very important. And again, the incentives are there to hopefully kickstart and really push forward, moving away from fossil fuels and onto renewable energies. So in addition to climate bills, uh, expanding Medicare, the, the bill that we're calling the reconciliation bill includes huge investments in education and childcare, universal preschool, paid family leave, federal support for childcare and elder care. These are also unprecedented at the scale uh, that Biden has proposed them, they will transform the lives of millions of people have put into law. Yes. And again, some of the biggest ticket items are things like the expansion of the uh, child tax credit through to 2025. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, the, yes, the expansion of child care services um, and things that, you know, you wouldn't have thought were traditionally you'd find in an infrastructure bill. Well, it's sort of been expanded the definition to human infrastructure. Yeah. And these are some of the biggest ticket items. And again, they are very solid redistributive. Um, uh, they, they provide services for people who have been unable to have these services. That has really exacerbated the sort of class divide and wealth divide in the country, um, really harmed people's any, any chance they have of social mobility. And um, by the way, community college uh, is going to be free for everybody who attends it across the country, a two-year community colleges in this proposal. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. And um, it's, of and, course. And 
paying for it all is a well, key part of this bill. The social programs and the climate uh, projects are not the only progressive part. The funding part is hugely uh, progressive. Please explain uh, what the proposal is there. Absolutely. This is also one of the reasons it is so good in terms of addressing uh, wealth inequality. It is paid for largely through progressive taxation, corporate taxes, closing of loopholes, which of course generally impact the wealthier taxpayers. Uh, so it's really drawn off of funds from the people who have been the winners in our national economic system over the last four decades. Um, there are a few other things that can contribute to the payment of the bill, including uh, the fact that you're negotiating, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. That will save the government a lot of money. Um, and so with that uh, being um, uh, a part of it, that will save money. And also if you eliminate uh, subsidies for fossil fuels, that again, over five years, I think amounts to 60 $75 billion. So, you know, these things add up. So it's it's drawn off of tax bases and it's drawn off of things like the way that these programs save money. And that saved money can, of course, be part of what is used to um, uh, pay for everything else. So this is unprecedented. It's massive. We need to talk about the political obstacles now for moving forward. Um, as you've said, this is actually part two of what was once a single gigantic infrastructure bill, but Biden and Chuck Schumer, just to remind our listeners, pulled out the parts for which they could get some Senate Republicans to support and created this separate bipartisan infrastructure bill for roads and bridges uh, uh, with $555 billion in new spending, also on water and power systems. That has now been sent back to the House where progressives say they're going to vote for that part only if the larger bill that we're calling the the reconciliation bill for these social programs is passed. There's also a group of conservative Democrats, I think nine or maybe it's 10 now, conservative House Democrats who are resisting that and who want to have first a separate vote for the Senate's a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, tell us about the obstacles being thrown up. Who are these nine or ten conservative House Democrats, and what's their uh, what's their what's their argument? Well, three of them are from South Texas, um, and as you can imagine, they have a very strong ties with uh, extractive industries and the fossil fuel industries. Then Josh Gottheimer is sort of their ringleader, a very conservative uh, Congressperson from um, New Jersey. Um, and he is in a district which is very split between Republicans and Democrats. And um, most of the 10 are in swing districts, and they are among the more conservative and most conservative members of the House caucus. Um, as you no doubt know, and our listeners know, you know the Democratic Party has had this uh, significant infusion of progressive energy in recent years. And you don't have to go back that many years to where there were very few progressives and the balance of the Democratic caucus was made up of uh, people whose economic policies were not that different than Republicans like George Bush and people like that. And um, so, um, you know, that's what that's what this group is drawn from. It includes Jared Golden from northern Maine, who's in a swing district, very difficult swing district in northern Maine. Um, he had remember he's the guy who was behind on the first ballot but because they have instant runoff voting, actually won his seat on the second ballot very barely in uh, 2018 and then survived in 2020. So he has a swing district. And, you know, there are more progressives than there are um, 
conservatives who will vote against the bill if the progressive measures are stripped out. Now, some of the conservative Democrats claim that if enough of these measures are stripped out, especially in terms of passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, if the progressives vote against it because they're trying to push it in advance, they're claiming they can get enough Republican votes to pass it. Um, Mm. We shall see. People are skeptical about that. But what is also clear is that Nancy Pelosi really came down on the side of the progressives in this instance. And um, I got to say, it's uh, it's rather, um, you know, definitely uh, an empowering feeling to have such a sort of masterful, masterful parliamentarian um, operating things to your advantage for a change, (laughs) you know, really, really uh, pulled it off. And I think she really got the better of the conservatives to the advantage of the progressives. Um, Kristen Sinema has really stepped out in the Senate, uh, claiming that she's going to single-handedly undermine the $3.5 trillion package in the Senate. But again, Schumer, Biden, you know, the heads of her party, um, and Pelosi really seem committed to working together to try to find a way around that by, by ha- making sure that the two bills are voted on virtually simultaneously, which will undercut cinema's capacity to vote against the $3.5 trillion legislation. Now, the things that they want taken out. Yeah, that's what I want to ask here. What for the Progressive Caucus is the bottom line here? What is non-negotiable that they're going to go after? Well, the first thing that I understand the conservatives are going to go after is immigration reform, Um, assuming that the parts that are written into the bill will not be undermined by the parliamentarian. If they are undermined by the parliamentarian, that's a whole other question. Will the Senate Democrats have the will to stand up to the parliamentarian, (laughs) which they don't have to uh, uh, just back down when the parliamentarian says. Yeah, Republicans have fired the the, the Senate parliamentarian when, when the person went against them. Um, and uh, but, you know, I think you can figure out the um, uh, political calculus that goes into the conservatives opposition to immigration reform on the one hand, you know, maybe they just have retrograde, um, you know, xenophobic uh, attitudes, but um, they fear that um, passage of the um, immigration reform, uh, that would be a good thing uh, for the people who are in limbo and the society are, are seeking to gain citizenship, et cetera. Um, you know, is is they're fearful that that's a very unpopular position within their uh, constituency. So they're they're poised to oppose that. Uh, we're of course poised to defend it and be because this is just I mean by any you know human rights standard whatsoever the treatment of immigrants in this country uh, who people who've lived here families who've lived here people who've grown up here is just at the point of absolute absurdity. I mean, we also are talking about. Uh, a segment of the population uh, that is as or more productive than any segment in the population in terms of contributing to the economy. So, um, you know, we really are adamant that we're going to stand for this. Uh, Our allies are too, and many in the Progressive Caucus. Having said that, um, I think the climate matters are um, really, really strong lines in the sand for the progressive movement. Um, And, um, you know, uh, hopefully, certainly the, the first top two Medicare expansions are, um, I don't think they'll get to those at this point. Um, Those, of course, would be very strong lines in the sand, but there's a lot there. There's so much that's good across so many places. I mean, we're very excited about, you know, having the, uh, what's it called? uh, Not the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. Now it's the um, Civilian Climate Corps get established. Um, And, you know, just getting something like that established. And by the way, it's not it is done in the reconciliation bill in a way that it's not its own department. So it's a sub department of an already existing structure. 
Um, but just establishing and getting it going, because the possibilities of this even expanding all the way out to um, becoming a federal jobs guarantee program um, is really promising and potentially transformational. Oh, by the way, Mark Takano, a, a fantastic congressperson from Southern California out near Riverside, wrote a great piece in the article in The Guardian uh, yesterday about a four-day work week. And um, again, you know, you want, you want to get, you know, full employment, you know, take, take 20% off everybody's workload and spread that <laughs> okay. through the population and then make that at a living wage. We'll all have better lives. And, um, and again, things like the CCC and the federal jobs program, it's great to see them under consideration by the really existing Democratic Party. Well, <clears throat> big political picture here. Historically, the party in power loses seats in the House and Senate in the midterm elections after they've won power. Happened to Obama in, 20, in 2010. He had to pass Obamacare in the first two years because Republicans took control of Congress after that. Happened to LBJ back in 1966. He had passed the Voting Rights Act and Medicare in its first two years. Republicans took control after that. Joe Biden knows this, Mitch McConnell knows this, Fox uh, News knows this. What do you think the chances are that if the Democrats pass the re this reconciliation, this massive $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill as the basis of their 2022 campaign, that they can hold on to their slim majorities in the House and their tie in the Senate? There's a lot there, but, um, you know, um, do you think it's possible that in, in the one party state known as California, that a governor who won with 60 percent of the vote can, can be recalled? I mean, this this speaks to um, the lack of political engagement from a large part of the Democratic base and the obsessive levels of political engagement with the Republican Party. Nobody thinks that if there's a turnout. Uh, that is comparable to the last presidential election or any of the recent presidential elections that the Republicans would take back the House, um, even with the gerrymandering. But nobody thinks that will happen. And, um, and the Republicans have always had a very well operating uh, political get out the vote machine. They expanded their base in the Trump era. So the, all that doesn't add up very well. But I have to say, too, this really does bounce into a point of, of cynicism for me about the Democratic Party. The Senate needs to pass an anti-partisan gerrymandering piece of legislation, ASAP. They need to do it with each passing minute. They're not even coming back from recess until September 13th, September 13th, at which point I think a few of the gerrymandered states will have their districts in place. While the law would say those would have to change by the next election cycle, I don't think they'll be able to overcome uh, the setting of any state's uh, districts um, before the bill is passed, because candidates have the right to know which district they're running in. That's a lot of levels of lawsuit to beat back in time to, to, to have non-gerrymandered districts for 2022. So the Democrats, in not addressing that, are basically putting themselves way behind the eight ball in terms of holding on to the House in 2022. It doesn't look good. And that's terrible. And that's terrible because this is really the big point about the reconciliation bill. It addresses, what does it do? It directly uses the federal government in the United States really for the first time in 40 years to address all of the inequities um, and, um, and, and, and crises, too, of our society, but particularly economic inequities, uh, which have just become so extreme in the society, using direct uh, federal government policy like Lyndon Johnson, like FDR. That's been off the table for uh, four decades since Ronald Reagan. And you know what? It can continue only if the Democrats hold the House. Any chamber is held by 
the Republicans, and it's a two-year break at least from any more progressive fiscal spending. If this works and people like it, and then we continue doing it, we've really broken away from the economic model we've had in America for the past four decades that has only worked for very few people. That's a socially transformational project. That's what's on the table in the reconciliation bill. That's what should be on the table in the midterms. Hopefully, people will recognize its benefits, get out and vote for the Democratic Party. Sadly, I just don't know what the heck's up with the party. It still seems to have this, oh, we're okay if we lose because, hey, Clinton and Obama lost, and then they won the presidency for a second term. Um, if they, people think that's okay in this political contest at this hour, they're, they're very mistaken. It'll be tragic if they lose. Alan Minsky, he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, online at pdaamerica.org. Alan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The fate of women in Afghanistan and the responsibilities of America towards them is the most painful and disturbing part of our departure from Afghanistan after almost 20 years there. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Katha, of course, is an award-winning poet, essayist, and columnist for the nation. She's been writing about Afghan women and urging us to support Afghan women's organizations for more than a decade. We reached her today in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. You've been writing about Afghan women's organizations for more than a decade. Do you consider yourself an expert on Afghanistan and on what's going to happen there next? No. In fact, I am the only journalist, the only opinion writer who is not an expert on Afghanistan. (laughs) Thank you for that. Your latest column is a report on what some prominent leaders of Afghan women's organizations told you about the American withdrawal and their current situation. Let's start with Fahima Gahiz, head of the Afghan Women's Fund. You've been writing about her and her organization for the nation. I looked this up since at least 2008, 13 years ago. First of all, tell us about her and about the fund she heads. Well, Fahima is a, uh, an Afghan expatriate who lives in the United States, and her fund uh, it's a small NGO that works mostly in rural Afghanistan. Um, she builds, they build girls' schools, they deliver supplies for schools and other material aid. They teach, they run literacy classes, skills to earn a living. And she was starting these women's councils in, in villages. Um, and I've been a supporter for many years and I count her as a friend. In the old days, we used to have uh, rug sales, Afghan rug sales in my apartment. Um, that was great. And I, my a whole apartment is covered in these beautiful rugs. Now. So we haven't done that for a while, though. And what did she tell you when you interviewed her last week? Well, naturally, she's incredibly um, distressed and upset by what's going on. She is trying to get um, people out. And that's not easy. As, as you know, there's been a lot of reporting about that. And, you know, I want to say uh, Fahima was always against the war. 
Always, always. Um, and was always reminding me, you know, it's not just the Taliban. There are, there are many uh, competing warlords, jihadis, um, all kinds of um, corrupt politicians. And it's really a, a terrible mess. And um, she always felt the United States made a tremendously terrible move in, uh, in kind of not getting rid of the warlords. The warlords were in the government. Um, she told me, you know, half the members of parliament are warlords and the other half are kind of allied with them, she told me. I mean, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it gives you a sense of how complicated our intervention has been um, when you throw billions of dollars at a very, very undeveloped, poor country, a lot of it is going to go missing. Well, I'm sure she knows that the official Taliban spokesman had this press conference where he said the Taliban would respect the rights of women, quote, within the limits of Islam, close quote. And he did not say the Taliban would return to their policies of 20 years ago when women were banned from work, girls were not allowed to go to school, women were banned from leaving the house without a male guardian, banned from appearing in public without a burqa. And when women were executed for moral offenses at those horrifying mass spectacles in stadiums and sports arenas, uh, did she say anything about the Taliban's recent statement that they will respect the rights of women within the limits of Islam? Well, she's skeptical, to put it mildly. I'll just quote what she told me, uh, what she wrote in an email to supporters, rather. Throughout the country, women and children are being displaced, losing their homes, experiencing rape, torture and murder and fleeing violence. Uh, last July, one of her workers was kidnapped by the Taliban and tortured. And more recently, the daughter of one of her aid workers was killed. So that doesn't sound very peaceful or conciliatory, does it? I, I think that the Taliban is saying what it needs to say in public to the West, I mean, to or to, you know, to the world, uh, the international, quote, community, unquote. But what happens is another story. And especially what happens in, you know, in some rural place where there aren't any journalists, um, where, where they've been they've been running a swath of the country for quite some time. And it has not been a happy story, and not just for women, but for um, for men who oppose their rule as well. So the Afghan Women's Fund says their current immediate project is to help the women and children who are living on the streets fleeing violence and murder, who have immediate needs for food, shelter, clothing, blankets, tents, toiletries, and medical care. You can find out more about the Afghan Women's Fund at afghanwomensfund.org, no spaces, one word, afghanwomensfund.org. Uh, you spoke with a second person named Yafat Suskind, the head of the international women's rights organization Madre. She's actually written for the nation. You first wrote about Madre in 2009, 12 years ago. Uh, tell us about Madre and, and about Yafat. Well, Madre is a, a very big uh, NGO that has uh, works with act local activists in many, many countries. Um, it's a feminist organization, and it's been working in Afghanistan. She said, I, I love this phrase, the Taliban has moved like water. 
into every place vacated by U.S. and NATO forces. So they're, you know, they were really ready. Um, And I wanted to talk to her because she was quoted in a recent Nation article in which she called on the, the administration to, quote, reinvest funding, unquote, for the war into, quote, supporting Afghan civil society and women's human rights. And I was curious, you know, given that the Taliban now runs the country, how is that supposed to happen? That article, by the way, was it was very optimistic. It was a lot of women uh, involved in international work, um, all saying um, this is a great opportunity for wonderful things to happen. This was before the Taliban took over, but I think they thought um, it was going to be a happier story than it turned out to be. But right now, she didn't really want to talk about that. Um, And right now, her focus, like Fahima's, and the other people I spoke to, the focus is on the immediate crisis, yeah. um, getting getting vulnerable activists out of the country. The Madre website right now says the U.S. must remain accountable for the harms they've committed in Afghanistan for two decades. Madre stands with the women on the ground who are taking action, defending their rights, and supporting their communities Find out more about Madre at madre.org. And you also talked with Sunita Viswanath, who's head of the NGO Women for Afghan Women, WAW. Tell us about her and her organization. Well, their organization runs uh, domestic violence shelters and shelters for other women who are, you know, at tremendous risk. And they it's it's big. They have a whole bunch of shelters throughout the country. And she, she too, is preoccupied with getting 500 of her staffers out of the country. I asked her if she believed the, the Taliban's promises, and she gave a more equivocal answer. She said, I don't know. And she noted that a Taliban spokesman was recently interviewed by a woman on Afghan TV, and she said that's unheard of. So the, the Afghan, Taliban is clearly making certain efforts to look more modern, more open to to women in, within limits um, than it did the last time around. But she did say, you know, we've always worked within an Islamic context and have been respectful of the country, the culture. It's a majority Muslim organization, uh, Women for Afghan Women. And if the Taliban says that girls can go to school, but not with boys, we can work with that. The website of Women for Afghan Women says... We're a majority Afghan and Muslim organization, but today we are all Afghans. Over the past few weeks, we have been working relentlessly 24-7 to keep our clients, staff, and families alive and safe. We are evacuating our centers, pausing our operations, and continually assessing risks, working day and night to provide safe shelter, resources, and aid to keep thousands of women, children, families, and our staff who, the staff who are under our care, we ask not only for your prayers in these desperate times, but for your immediate support to get us through this crisis. Women for Afghan Women is online at where you would expect them to be, womenforafghanwomen.org, no spaces. There's one other person you did not talk to who I know something about, the founder and head of the only all-girls boarding school in Afghanistan. It's called SOLA, S-O-L-A, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. Remarkable woman named Shabana Basidra Sikh. She was recently featured in an interview on the New Yorker podcast, interviewed by Sue Halperin, where she quoted one of her students saying, 
the Taliban will kill more of us. The Taliban will kill a lot more of us, but they will never, ever rule over us. Quote, this is a student at a girls' boarding school in Afghanistan. Shabana recently tweeted that she had burned all the records of the Sola students to protect them and their families. And she says, quote, my students, colleagues, and I are safe with enormous gratitude to our ever-vibrant global village, specifically today, Wednesday, we're recording this on Wednesday, she announced that 200 students and teachers got out of Afghanistan via Qatar and are spending what she calls a semester abroad in Rwanda. That, I guess, is the global village she's talking about. A remarkable story. We'd love to hear more about it. And you can learn more about Shabana and Sola at solaafghanistan.org. That has a dash, sola-afghanistan. So uh, your closing thoughts about what else we would we need to know uh, before we can declare ourselves experts. Well, uh, one thing I'd like to mention is that there is kind of a meme going around that uh, feminists supported the war, white feminists. This is actually not true. Um, what is true is that some, the Democratic women politicians in the federal government voted for the war. And there were certainly high profile women who supported the war and gave a defense of women's rights as the reason. But most feminists are not those people, those high profile A-list people. And they opposed the war. I mean, Code Pink, I, I, I ask you, you know, uh, Code Pink, you can't possibly be more anti-war than them. Um, and and I, I, don't, I don't just want to say, you know, my friends, I don't know any feminists who supported the war. Um, and I think it's just really easy, like the way it's really easy to blame Biden for the mistakes of, you know, 20 years. It's really easy to blame feminists quote unquote, for this, because one always wants to blame women, but really, uh, <laughs> okay. but really, uh, but really, this, this is not on them. So just to sum up, we've talked here about the Afghan Women's Fund, more information at afghanwomensfund.org, all one word, no spaces, no hyphens, about Madre, more information about them at madre.org, about Women for Afghan Women, that's womenforafghanwomen.org, all one word, no spaces, no hyphens. And I mentioned the only all-girl boarding school in Afghanistan, which is now out of the country, SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan. They're at sola-afghanistan.org. Katha Pollitt, her new column at The Nation is Afghan Women and Girls Are Caught in the Crossfire. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. We needed you today. Thanks so much for having me. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. And she teaches at the USC School of Cinema. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. 
You and I both teach at universities, and we're both big fans of Sandra Oh. And now there's a new comedy out about teachers at a college, and it's starring Sandra Oh as the first Asian-American woman chair of an English department at a liberal arts college that's in financial trouble. It's called Chair. It's on Netflix, six parts. What did you think of Chair? Well, I'll tell you that in a moment, but as I was foraging around a number of other movies that have academic settings, I discovered that almost every single one of them is set in an English department, which led me to ask why, why, um, and to answer that in this case, as in most of the others, English departments are the, the poor relation of universities, and universities of this kind are liberal, sort of low-grade Ivy League college like Pembroke, uh, in <laughs> yes. quotes. I, I was actually thinking it has to be Oberlin. <laughs> um, universities are fairly hermetically sealed in towers that are growing less ivory by the year. Uh, and in particular in the humanities, which are becoming uh, more and more endangered as each year passes, uh, as universities become much more te technocratic. Um, their funding is low. So are the stakes because the tendency is for nobody outside those English departments to care much about them or indeed uh, read their product, as a result of which there's a lot of very crazy behavior in English departments. And that has been the fodder for, for so many movies. I'll talk about the others in a, in a, a bit. Uh, the chair is certainly not lacking in crazy behavior. I think we can agree on that. And uh, it's also, as happens, I think, in humanities departments, many universities, it's become the epicenter of um, rifts in the wider culture, um, which is strange given how insignificant it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, cultural, culture wars and ideological wars. Um, Sandra Oh uh, is very capable indeed as the first woman of color to become chair um, in this not Oberlin college. <laughs> uh, and she has a hell of a time trying to mediate between all the different fights um, within the college, as well as her low-level love affair, or rather it's not, it's not low-grade, it's very high-octane, but uh, she's trying to hide it for obvious reasons, with um, the wild card of the department, a guy named Bill, who is played very well by Jay Duplass. And uh, she's also having to deal, uh, quite apart from departmental politics, with her small adopted daughter uh, who has a Korean name, but she's actually Latina. And she is played by a little pistol of a girl named Everly Cargania, who's very small, but um, must look, be older than she looks because she's always got, she's also got three other films under her belt already. Wow. And she is a very feisty little madam who uh, is as candid as Bill and therefore gets along very well with him. So she is one of the people, the two who walk away with the movie. Uh, and the other one is Holland Taylor, who is absolutely terrific and also very funny and sometimes very serious as the only representative of 60s feminism um, in the department. 
Um, Bob Balaban is also very, very good as one of the old school English formalists um, who is becoming increasingly, increasingly irrelevant, but um, has also decided to uh, to side with a young African-American professor in the department who's very keen on, on critical race theory and critical theory in general. So there are three intellectual um, generations represented here, and most of them hate each other quite a bit. <laughs> and, uh, uh, David Morse um, is also very good as the dean, who's, you know, really, on the one hand, a, a typical bureaucrat, and on the other, really wants to try and save this department from imminent extinction, because it's suffering from uh, low and decreasing enrollments. I think that the, I actually quite like this movie. It's, it's uh, created and co-written by um, Amanda Peet, a very good comic and serious um, actress. She was in um, Nicole Holofsen's very good film, uh, Please Give, um, and she's been in a whole bunch of things. She's married to David Benioff of Game of Thrones, who um, is also an executive producer. And she is quite frank in interviews about the fact that that helped her get this off the ground because nobody really wants uh, to greenlight a movie set in academe. <laughs> and uh, her co-writer and creator is uh, Annie Wyman, with whom I'm not, not familiar. I like the fact that they actually take on... Um, current issues in the university, especially the crisis of higher education in, in general, as um, classic as the canon is increasingly not taught, even in Ivy League uh, schools. Um, and I think the writing is very good. Where the, where the series falls down a little bit, I think, is uh, in the compulsion to veer into slapstick uh, every so often, and although it's not terrible, the, the slapstick is also not needed. Well, I have to say, I I didn't like it very much. I thought as a picture of academia, in my experience anyway, it was about 20 years out of date. The, the old white men like Bob Balaban are really gone from the university uh, today. As a comedy, I have to say, I didn't think it was very funny. I, I agree the slapstick was was unsuccessful, a professor peeing in public. That broad kind of humor alternated with gentle mockery in a kind of inconsistent way. As a rom-com, I thought it was more successful. And as a portrait of an Asian-American woman trying to have it all, career, single mother parenting, romance, I thought it was really good, of course, because Sandra Oh is really good which we know from Grey's Anatomy, which I checked has been on TV for 15 years. I think one of the things that this series gets right about uh, current uh, politics in higher education is the fact that the, the notion that there are degrees of evil seems to have escaped, in particular, a lot of radicalized students, uh, but also a lot of professors. So the plot of the series rests on the fact that Bill, the wild card, who always, you know, as my mother would say, what's on his lungs is on his tongue and is always getting himself into trouble for that reason, is seen imitating 
a Nazi. And as a result, the students immediately decide that he is a Nazi um, and they uh, go on strike and they pick it and, and so on and so forth. These, of course, are the furthest thing. He was trying to illustrate fascism. But uh, as Sandra O oh comes out and says, we owe it to these students to teach them properly. And I think that that is true, that, that not every evil is of the same degree. And in this case, they got it entirely wrong. So chair, as you've said, is part of a genre, the academic comedy. You mentioned there are several other notable contributions to this genre. Tell us about them. Well, I went down a rabbit hole and it turns out that I was there quite a while because there are so many movies and novels and plays uh, that are set in, that have academic settings. Uh, they're very notable in British cinema. And I'll talk about that in a second. One of the most famous um, for cinephiles is the 1931 German movie Medkin in Uniform, um, which was one of the first dramas to directly um, confront lesbian love in a German high school and at the same time to attack uh, fascist authoritarianism as it's presented in that, in that school. And so let's move to England, which I obviously know best. One of my favorite comedies of all time, and it is very slapstick, but the British do this really well, is the 1954. Uh, by the way, you can see um, Maitland in uniform on Criterion. It streams there. The Bells of St. Trinians, which was made in 1954, is one of the great classics of British slapstick comedy. And it's set in a it's extremely bawdy um, comedy, much of it in drag, because the great British actor Alistair Sim plays the headmistress. Uh, and uh, Joyce Grimfell, the, the famed monologist who was really England's Ruth Draper, um, also has a role in it. It's absolutely wonderful. There's all this knockabout comedy, and it's there to show how badly most schools function and how quickly they can uh, go out of control. And believe it or not, although it was made in 1954, you can see it on Amazon. Do not, I caution our listeners, go to the pretty dreadful punk remake, which was made a few years ago and is also on Amazon. The one you want is the 1954 version. Uh, and probably we're going to get lots of protest emails saying it has a very British sense of humor and we don't find it funny. <laughs> Another one, uh, and here I want to urge you not to see any of the numerous films that have been made out of Kingsley Amos's wonderful novel, 1957 novel, Lucky Jim, which is one of the funniest novels I've ever read. Also set in an English department, this time uh, in England, and it's about a young assistant professor who's trying to uh, impress the dean, as they're, they're called here, and all his many mistakes doing that. The novel is wonderfully written. Kingsley Amis is the father of, of Martin Amis, and just a brilliant, if extremely sexist writer, and be warned that this novel and the films that follow it are very sexist, but it's worth it. And I could not find a place where you can legally stream these, which means oh that with a little research, you can probably <laughs> find somewhere to stream it. 
And uh, the very first uh, film starred uh, Ian Carmichael, also known as Bertie Wooster from, uh, from other films. And then there is, of course, Alan Bennett, who has written a number of plays uh, set in, in uh, bo British boarding schools. And I want to pick out two that I think are extremely memorable. One of them is uh, 40 Years On, which he made very early, which is set in a, uh, a British public school, which means private school, a boarding school, um, with uh, uh, Sir John Gielgud as the headmaster. And it is a comedy. It's very wittily written. But it is also there to uh, be prescient about a generation. It's set in, in 1914 about a generation that was about to be set, uh, sent off to die at the Somme. So it has a very serious compo component too. You can listen to it as a BBC drama, um, which is easily found uh, on the internet, and it, it's extremely highly recommended and both funny and, and, uh, and very moving. His other uh, notable film is quite recent. It's called The History Boys, and it stars the great, late great actor Richard Griffith as a, a teacher who is trying to maintain the romantic tradition in an English department. But he, he also likes to feel up the boys uh, when he takes them out on a motorcycle. There is a character that is played by Stephen Stephen Campbell Moore, who is based, uh, and I got this from the horse's mouth, me meaning uh, Alan Bennett when I interviewed him, he's based on uh, ne the right-wing historian Neil Ferguson, um, who is a proponent of the new history. He's very hip and so on and so forth, but uh, not approved of in this film. Uh, and... Um, James Corden has a role in this film as the uh, the fat boy that every British comedy has and is set in a uh, in a school. My candidate for one of the worst American films that was set, and this is going to make me a lot of enemies, um, is uh, Dead Poets Society, an extremely popular movie uh, starring Robin Williams as a teacher who values instinct over knowledge. He's also a romantic. Uh, it struck me as a decidedly, it's directed by Peter Weir, the Australian director, from a really terrible script by Tom Shulman. I know that this film is very popular. To me, it seemed to be teaching the essence of fascism pretty much as the prime of Miss Jean Brodie did, um, mm. except that uh, here we're supposed to think it's a good thing. Um, a more recent film, uh, which I watched again, uh, is The Wonder Boys, which was made, I think, in the early 90s, uh, directed by the late um, esteemed director Curtis Hansen, who, who died of uh, early onset Alzheimer's recently. You can find that on, on Amazon, along with, um, I believe, Dead Poets Society as well. The Wonder Boys is also set in an English department, and it stars Michael Douglas as a, an English professor who's having a midlife crisis, and it's just terrific. I, I really loved it. There are also finally um, some very recent movies that um, 
are made in the African-American community. One of them is Dear White People, which was a movie to start with that you can find on Amazon, uh, which was set in a, it's about uh, political fights among students in a in a very in a diverse school, uh, and it recently became a highly successful TV series that has now also been uh, renewed for a season, and that can be seen on Amazon. The the film anyway, um, and the series I believe on on uh, Hulu. There's also one film that's not nearly as well known as it should be, and that is a film by the African American female um, director Dee Reese, and it's called Pariah. And if you can believe it, it is set amongst the subculture of aggressive lesbians. And that apparently is actually a subculture that exists in a school. It's a wonderful, terrific, very unusual um, movie. And you can see that on Amazon, too. We reviewed Cellar and the Spades last year here in this in this space. You can see that that's set in a girls boarding school uh, and that's uh, uh, on Amazon. And then, of course, uh, the well-known um, Booksmart and Ladybird, both of which are about girls in, in school. So it's an incredible, given the, the fact that, you know, this, these are not movies that easily get greenlit by studios. There is a huge amount. And I, I can only speculate that this is partly because schools are places that are supposed to run like clockwork on order. Uh, so it's very easy to introduce disorder into them. A remarkable rundown of several notable contributions to the academic genre of films, the latest of which is Chair on Netflix, starring Sandra O. Oh, six parts. Ella Taylor is our TV and film critic. Thank you, Ella. You're welcome, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.